Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord Jesus. Amen. The book of Micah that we heard a portion of a moment ago depicts the people of God abusing their power. They use unjust scales when it comes to buying and selling, so their economics are corrupt. The leaders, they take bribes. The prophets abuse the people by only saying, I'll prophesy good things for you as long as you pay me well. They're abusing their power. There is a definite problem and imbalance of power and how the people understand and use that power. And God is angry with his rebellious people. They keep burdening the weak. They burden the vulnerable. And God's spokesmen, the prophets, are like propping the whole thing up as well and supporting it with their words. And in chapter 6 that we had, Yahweh questions the people, brings a formal charge against them. How have I burdened you? What have I done that you act this way? It's as if he may be wondering, are you burdening people because you think that I burden you? Like, this is how you conceive of my character, and so you're mimicking that? God goes on to say, in fact, let me just tell you what I have done for you. Remember Egypt? Slavery, legislated infanticide, the heavy weight of oppression? I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you. I unburdened you from that yoke. You had nobody to lead you, but rather than put that weight upon you, I gave that weight to Moses. And not only Moses, I also gave you Aaron and Miriam as leaders to lighten the load for you. Remember Balaam, the journey to Gilgal, how though you continued to rebel against me and harm one another, I fed you with manna and quail so that you would not be burdened by hunger. We don't often go back and look at the story of Balaam because we don't often get the opportunity to. And so I want to unpack that bit of Micah's words today to help us understand what God is saying. So we've got to go back a few hundred years, back to the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, we watch this scene unfold inside the Israelite camp. The people are arguing, they're vindictive, they're abusing power, and they're repeatedly rebelling against God. And this is a people who should know by far better. Again, they've been miraculously fed every single day in the desert. They were powerfully taken out of Pharaoh's oppression. And yet they keep firing away at one another, keep firing away at God, and God is angry with them. Angry with their divisiveness, angry with their presumptuousness and arrogance, even angry with Moses. Because Moses starts doing the same thing as well, acting of his own accord. The Israelite camp is a mess, right? If we're watching like a movie and we're watching the Israelite camp, there's all this bickering, fighting, and biting. And we may be wondering, God has got to be getting to the end of this fuse, right? He's been plaguing them. He sent poisonous snakes amongst them. He is clearly angry with his people. But suddenly in the story of Numbers, the scene changes, right? We leave the Israelite camp, and now it's like if you're watching a movie, we pan out and we're on a hillside overlooking the Israelite camp. And there's a guy named Balaam there. 
Now, Balaam is a sorcerer, a diviner of sorts. He worships the gods of the nations, of Moab, most likely, and other surrounding nations. And he's been hired and paid by the king of Moab to curse the nation of Israel. To call on spiritual forces. To call on God, to even call on Yahweh, to call on anybody to bring ruin and destruction to Israel. Because the king of Moab is terrified of this people and of their God. But every single time Balaam opens his mouth... He does these rituals, he does his incantations, and every time he opens his mouth, he blesses them. Because Yahweh will not let him curse Israel. It's a fascinating scene. On the one hand, we know what it's like in the Israelite camp. They don't deserve protection and care. And yet outside the camp, God is still doing whatever it takes to protect them. He refuses to let them be cursed. He keeps blessing this people who are divisive and destructive, not because of them, but because he's just full of mercy. And he shows his deep commitment to his promise to his people. Fast forward back a few hundred years to the days of Micah. He tells the people, look how you're acting. This is out of line with the God who unburdens people who has repeatedly blessed you even when you were being destructive and divisive, even when you were abusing power. I don't care about all of your formal acts of worship, right? He says, can we bring thousands, tens of thousands of rivers of oil and all these animals? No. Change how you've been living, Micah writes. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Be an unburdener and a blesser. Mimic and follow the character of your God. The story of the Israelite camp in the days of Balaam, the story of the Israelites in the days of Micah, it's not just about Israel. It's a snapshot of how humanity seems to keep functioning If we are appalled at the divisive and destructiveness of the Israelites, if we find ourselves shocked and appalled at the presumptuousness in this story, their arrogance and selfishness in the face of God's generosity, we should probably also be appalled at today as well. What do we see? Division. Destruction. We have acts of violence in our country that keep happening over and over and in our own community. And then, to make this really specific, we argue about things like Second Amendment rights without listening to those who are burdened and without doing much of anything, it seems, that makes a difference. Came across this statistic this week. This is the number one cause of death for children in our country. Number one, I thought it was accidents or car crashes or other issues. No, this is the number one cause of death from age 18 on down. Number one. And if you think it's about locks and safety measures, it may be important to recognize that that is one tiny sliver of all of these deaths. It's a situation that continues to weigh heavier and heavier upon people 
youth and others. Maybe you've heard them talking this way. Maybe you have felt and talked this way. Talk about how heavy it is to go to school. People talk about how much of a weight, a burden it is to do things like go to the store, go dancing, go to a rec center. We had this happen here just recently, like a mile from here. These things are becoming heavier and heavier, consistent burdens for our youth and for many other people. And we argue about solutions, right? We bite and blast one another. Sometimes we're convinced this is God's will. And I'm more and more convinced that we are ignoring God's character more and more. Especially when it comes to matters of power. Matters of power. Regardless of where you stand as far as political parties goes, if we do not rethink our conceptions of power today, our solutions will probably just continue to burden people And again, I know this is a hot-button issue. You may be tuning me out for all I know, but it's an issue that directly involves the lives of the vulnerable. And I hope that we can see it hasn't gotten any better in the last number of years. So power, power. When we think of power today and strength, we may think of exercising power against someone else in order to protect another individual, right? I get to do whatever is in my power, and that may include harming or destroying someone else as a good use of power if it results in, again, saving somebody or protection of another. We talk this way. We see it as unburdening somebody who is in danger. At the end of this service, we're going to sing the song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And the song takes on this fighting language, right? We're gonna fight for Jesus and the cross. Do whatever it takes to make sure that the cross does not suffer loss. But doing whatever it takes isn't about getting them before they get someone else. It's not about getting them or attacking them for our faith. The language of this song should be heard as being situated in Scripture, in Scripture's unveiling of its understanding of power, especially in regards to the crucifixion. Because that is the greatest revealing, as Paul points out, of God's power. If we want to talk about power, we have to consider the crucifixion of Jesus. It is, Paul says, the power of God and his wisdom. It's the highest revealing of God's approach to what power is and what strength is. The cross is not a use of power by Jesus against anyone. He's not getting them first before they get him. He's sacrificing himself. And not sacrificing in the sense of he's dying in the process of getting someone else. Like he's not taking out a human enemy, but being killed in the process and saving us in the act. No, he's dying for everyone. He sacrifices himself to protect and offer life, even to the ones holding the weapons in the story. His crucifixion is a willing act of losing, losing his comfort, losing his position. He loses possessions and privilege in order to unburden and bless the Roman soldiers, the rulers, the Sanhedrin that condemned him, and every single person. 
Right? They're all fighting and biting and blasting. And God refuses to adopt their ethos. He refuses to adopt their rhetoric. He refuses to retaliate. He refuses to curse them. It's Balaam all over again. But this time, Israel is not the only one being blessed, but all humanity, even those labeled as dangerous or enemies. God will not allow humanity to be cursed. Instead, Jesus becomes the curse so that all are given life and salvation. This is what Paul refers to as power, right? Power. This is strength. Power is not what can I do to someone to protect somebody else. Power is about what am I willing to do to myself to make sure that all people have the opportunity to thrive. It is not a strength to kill another for the sake of someone else as far as God's understanding of power, but the strength to suffer loss, to lose privilege and protection, to set aside arrogance and position, to set aside our worldly conceptions of power, to give up on rhetoric that focuses on myself and what I want or get. We are called to bless even those harming others, even to disadvantage ourselves, to set aside our rights, as Paul specifically says he does for the church in Corinth. He knows what his rights are, and he'll set them aside for the sake of love for others. This is what it is to do justice. This is what it is to love mercy. God's justice and mercy is that all should thrive, and that means even the ones, again, we label as enemies are dangerous. If we reduce that sense of justice and mercy in some way so that it doesn't include a specific individual or a specific party or a specific group, whatever that is, we're redefining God's character. And I imagine that's not something that God appreciates. In fact, if I had to guess from Micah's words and the rest of his letter, it's probably something he hates, having people tarnish and redefine his character. To do justice and love mercy is to walk with God as one who is an unburdener. Our youth today and many other people are burdened. Burdened by the way we as a society talk about and conceive of power. Burdened by the way we distort God's character and what it means to love and care for others. We as the church need to keep going back to God's character as it's revealed in Jesus. Paul says we preach Christ crucified, right? It's what he desired only to know. That's his display of power, and we must be willing to even kill our own personal desires that don't align with that mercy. It's what it is to repent. To shape our desires around the crucifixion so that we don't perpetuate more destruction and divisiveness within our society. Reshape desires, right? If we take this seriously, it means that we act and behave and work to reshape our communities that will lift this burden and seek for care for all people. How that comes about exactly, I don't necessarily know. But this is sometimes another sticking point for us. We hear of God's mercy, his willingness to bless. Even when his people are rebelling, he forgives. Even while we were enemies, and to this mercy we say, Amen. God says, Walk with me. We say, Amen. 
We recommit ourselves. I'll make church attendance a priority. I'm going to pray more each day. I'm going to read the scriptures more regularly. Fine and good, but it sounds also at times a bit like the people in Micah's day. What do you want us to do? Offer 10,000 sacrifices? Give our firstborn as well? Should we do all these formal acts of worship? We'll heighten our engagement, our formal worship attendance. But God says to us, you know, O humans, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. It's in his very character. It's on full display in the crucifixion of his son. Do justice. Love mercy. Unburden the burdened. Behave and live in a way that helps the vulnerable and bless even those who oppress and destroy. That's what God wants. Not more formal acts of individual worship, but acknowledging the burden of others and working together to shape our communities and our lives in a way that lifts that burden, in a way that's consistent with the very character of God. May God help us to do this. We resist it, right? We do. We have this thing of sin that keeps warring within our body to resist this. But God's mercy is consistent and persistent. May he help us more and more each day. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.